Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will influence politics in the future. I'm Jonathan Tanner and this week we're inviting back our first ever returning guest. Jamie Bartlett joined us at the start of 2018 with a very gloomy, pessimistic prediction for the rest of the year. Since then, things have moved on a lot. We've had Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, and he's published a book called The People vs. Technology, in which he argues that democracy and technology are fundamentally incompatible unless we make some changes to the way that we carry out political processes. I sat down with him as the England football team were preparing for a World Cup quarter-final to check in on how he feels 2018 is unfolding and whether the predictions in his book look likely to come true. Jamie, welcome back to Government vs. the Robots. Thanks for having me back. Uh, there's only one question I can ask you first up. Is it coming home? Um, I, I, it's already come home as far as I'm concerned because we've, we've got over the penalty demon. That's, that's come home. That's good enough. Good. So by the time people are listening, uh, you'll either be soothing their frustrations with that comment that it's already come home, or you'll have massively underplayed one of the greatest, <laughs> greatest moments in uh, English history, but time will tell. Um, we were in the business of predictions last time we spoke, uh, so I was asking you whether you thought 2018 had grounds for optimism or grounds for pessimism, and you, uh, it's fair to say, struck a fairly pessimistic tone throughout the episode. Uh, since then... You've published a new book, The People vs. Tech, uh, a really enjoyable read. But I was wondering if anything's happened in the process of publication or the conversations that you've had since that have, uh, forgive me, given you any more cause for optimism or do you remain just as pessimistic as you were at the start of the year? Things just uh, take slower so than you expect. So uh, take slower, take longer. <laughs> they are slower. So talking about the sort of, Oh, the collapse of free will and the sort of the drift into an automated economy without any safety nets. Those things are, I mean, they're clearly not going to happen in the next six months. But nothing, I mean, nothing that I've seen in the in, since we last spoke has suggested that any part of my prediction was wrong. <laughs> oh, look at what just happened on the with the high street. Loads more shops are shutting down. People are terrified about that. Has politics got any nicer or kinder? Are we? I mean, I think when I last spoke to you, all the Cambridge Analytica story hadn't broken. Yeah. So the, the big thing that's happened right. was Cambridge there Analytica go. and Facebook. Yeah. Um, and also GDPR, kind of relevant as well. Very relevant because it's one thing that I one example of government pushing back which is exactly what i suggest is needed uh, and how's the book landed 
uh, on lots of doorsteps and <laughs> libraries and bookstores. Yeah, yeah, pretty well, I think, actually. the t- You know, we pulled forward the publication date by six weeks because I had all this stuff in there about Cambridge Analytica, about Facebook, about things that were clearly happening as the kind of we were going to print. And let me give you a piece of advice, anyone who's out there writing, when your publisher says, oh, you know, we couldn't possibly publish this within 18 months and it's a six-month um, time frame to go through production, rubbish. If they click their fingers, they can pull it forward and do it in a week, which is what we did. <laughs> so it came out very, very soon after the Cambridge Analytica story, that week where everyone was going Cambridge Analytica loopy. It came out that week after that. And what do you feel has resonated with most most with people who've who've read it and fed back to you? I think it depends on the person. A lot of people don't agree with the thesis, and a lot of people. I guess the the, the single most sort of popular comeback on it is. Before you do that, quickly describe oh. the thesis. Oh well, yeah. For of anyone else, yeah, read yeah, the yeah, book. I thought the title might have given it. Away. <laughs> so the title is the pe- the, the people versus uh, tech: how the internet is killing democracy and how we save it. And the argument is simple: that uh, we essentially have an old system of government built in one set of technologies a hundred, two hundred years ago, and we suddenly have a brand new set of technologies that don't really work easily with our representative democracy. And we have these sort of pillars of democracy, I call them, that make the thing work. Elections that people trust, sense of moral responsibility and the, the sort of the capacity of citizens to make complex moral choices, um, uh, the willingness to compromise with each other, a strong middle class, a criminal justice system that works, the things that make democracy actually tick, you know, that it actually works and people think this is a good system and I like it. Those things are getting undermined by digital technology, not intentionally, but they just are. There are good things too, of course. We have a platform, we have a voice, people can club together in a way never before. Media wasn't perfect 50 years ago either. And so... But the, the problem is those those obvious democratic benefits that digital technology does create us, especially for free speech, I think blind us to the deeper malaise, the bigger problems that are being, the sort of those pillars that I mentioned that are being chipped away at. So funnily enough, after the Cambridge Analytica incident, I think a lot of people intuitively felt like that book was onto something. They're like, yeah, yeah, there is a problem, isn't there? These big tech monopolies, these elections being manipulated with, trolls are getting really mean and angry, artificial intelligence, no one even ever considers how we'd live in a democracy alongside smart machines. It seems to be something even beyond our imagination. And so I feel like it it really resonated with a lot of people, especially the Cambridge Analytica stuff, but there's still a lot of pushback against that, understandably, because a lot of people have seen Brexit as a terrible thing and Trump as a terrible thing, but there's millions of people that think it's an amazing thing and it was a democratic victory and it was a fantastic result finally for people to have their say and I I don't disagree with that in many ways. So this is not really about one election or another. This is about a sort of broader underlying systemic problem. And I noticed today in the news that uh, Google have just confirmed that people... Uh, with G- with with certain apps accessing Gmail, humans have been able to read the Gmail emails, um, which isn't something I think anybody would have assumed was able to happen. I think people would have understood that there was machine readability in the emails and scanning for words and such like. But apparently, app developers have been able to access emails directly. That news story is buried on the BBC. It's on the tech site, and it feels to me as invasive as something like the Facebook Cambridge Analytica story. And yet, there is no 
brouhaha, um, which does kind of confirm, I guess, a sense of kind of malaise and indifference. Is that fair? I wonder whether it's uh, exhaustion. The sort of, oh, another, guess what, another company, or well, not, not Google, but other app developers are getting hold of our data. Well, we've heard this all before. It's not about an election. So I think that when you when the Cambridge Analytica story really blew up because it was around a specific election and a controversial election. And if you speak to anyone that works in ad tech or digital advertising, they will say, I mean, I can't believe people are getting worried about Cambridge Analytica because <laughs> loads of us are doing this all the time. But because it was tied to Trump, I think it, it blew up in a different way, really got people interested in the subject. And now I'm afraid, yeah, I, I fear that it's just going to be, these stories are going to drip out week after week and people are going to sort of shrug their shoulders about it. Hope not. I tend to agree with you. Um, I'd be interested to know who the app developers are and whose emails have been read. And I guess if two of those t- uh, turn out to be interesting or politically relevant, there may yet be a story there. Yet. Yeah. And bear this in mind. I mean, one of the reasons that I think the Facebook Cambridge Analytica story blew up in the way that it, wa- that it did is because a lot of newspapers really dislike Google and Facebook because they think they've stolen all their advertising revenue. I mean, they are the two of them are responsible for 99 cents of every new dollar that's spent on online advertising. So the newspapers are very, very happy to run anti-tech stories at the moment. And I imagine there's going to be more of them coming. So while there might be a bit of a malaise amongst the readership, I think the editors are going to push this for a while longer. In an attempt to drive a kind of uh, a old media-led tech lash? Where something like that. Something like that. You know, most of them insist on this single point that Facebook and Google should be treated as publishers, just, just as they are, with all the same legal constraints. So they're legally responsible for basically checking what they host on their site, which Facebook and Google push back against hard. Google meaning YouTube, really, in this case. Uh, and so anything they can really do to sort of <laughs> nudge more opinion in that direction, they probably will. I'm going to come back to that question of uh, platform versus publisher a little oh, bit later on, cool. um, just to find out what you think. Uh, but before we do, what we're going to do is quickly look at tech and democracy and their compatibility, ask a bit about people as actors in democracy, and then ask a bit about governments as regulators in democracy. You're very well prepared, aren't you? I do my best. You do. You do, do your homework, best. don't you? Uh, <laughs> the uh, first question I wanted to ask relating to the book or my reading of the book is... One, whether you would agree that actually we've got the people versus tech, but in a sense, this feels to me like the people versus globalization in that tech is just one element of a lot of things that are happening as the world kind of feels increasingly smaller and technology drives that. But how how migration plays into this picture, um, how the nature of inequality in kind of our Western capitalist societies play into this picture, all of them are in a kind of heady brew. And so tech is is one element of that. But actually, this is a process that arguably predates the Internet. Is that a fair reading, do you think? Yeah, there are obviously lots of other things going on at the same time as this. And there's a close relationship to them. I mean, a lot of a lot of modern globalization, especially international trade, depends on digital technology. The mass movement of people is helped by digital technology. Digital technology helps the mass movement of people and the mass movement of people helps digital technology so it's quite hard to separate them all out but the the difficult thing with digital technology is that it covers so much yes it's the big trends driving inequality and i think digital technology is part of that story 
um, mass movement people, climate change. These are these are big, complicated subjects. But digital technology also gets right down to the personal level. Like how do you, how do we engage with information and with fellow citizens and run elections and sort of the technical bits of both our how our personal lives work, how we engage with our politicians. These things I think transcend the bigger, broader issues of migration or climate change you know it's like a foundational information change and i think that 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 leads me quite nicely to my second question around uh, a lot of people recent in recent episodes have been saying how tech is neutral you know, tech is a neutral entity and it's how people choose to use and apply technology to society or to their own lives that that really matters but when i read and reread your book the you read it twice Read it, I read it when it first came out, and then I read it very, very <laughs> quickly last night. When I say reread, I mean skimmed through <laughs> last night. But the, uh, you, you don't seem to be writing about tech as a neutral actor. Who writes about it as a neutral actor? This I don't understand this argument. That famous Kranzberg law of technology, technology is, is not good nor bad, but nor is it neutral, is spot on. I mean, it's, it changes the dynamics of and the incentives it changes how you communicate with each other it changes the sort of de- your own default settings yeah people are going to use things for good and for bad but i think that allows you to sidestep the much more interesting question about how does it change the the incentive the sort of the natural behavior of how we communicate with each other because there's no doubt it's different talking online to a person as it is talking offline to someone that's not a neutral change and I think we see that all the time around us. And I can give you loads of examples. So, yeah, to, to me, it's, it's certainly not a, a simply about how do we use it. It's, it's fundamentally changing all, I mean, really all aspects of our lives, some in good ways, but when it comes to democracy, mostly in bad ways. Like, this is the thing though. I'm not saying technology is bad for personal convenience or for economic growth or for, I mean, even maybe happiness and well-being. It's specifically about democracy. And I think I would, without getting too philosophical about it, because a lot of people have thought a lot harder about this than I do, tech's definitely changing some, to some degree what it is to be human at the moment. And if it changed what it is to be human, and humans are the prime actors in a democracy, then inevitably it's changing the kind of fabric and nature of democracy. Yeah. So how much should we care, for example, about the level of addictive behaviours being demonstrated around people's use of phones when we're thinking about uh, when we're thinking about how people think through or act politically, I think we should be very very conscious about it. So when we walk around and we see not just young people, everyone says kids, but adults are probably worse, walking around staring at their phones or checking their phones every fifteen seconds. The main focus with that is: is this good for our mental health? Is it is it good is it, is it good for our ability to concentrate? Is it good for how we feel? Is it, is it related to a mental health crisis and so on? But that, those questions are also important about health of a democracy because citizens need to take complicated, reasoned, moral judgments about things that requires a degree of focus and concentration the ability to grapple with complicated ideas to listen to opponents and consider where they're coming from and that is a lot harder if your attention span has been cut in half you're incapable of thinking for a long time about something and you rush to a judgment straight away because your powers of focus are gone i don't know about you but i feel like i can't concentrate on complicated documents anymore like i actually used to read government documents properly all the way through and really 
come to a judgment on them can't be bothered anymore just quickly look on twitter and see what everyone else is saying and then join in the the rampage and that's just not good for democracy because as you mentioned as it's always said i mean the health of a democracy depends on the health of its citizens and i think it's a real worry if our attention spans are being cut you know i don't think of this as a very obvious thing to get your hands on because it's hard to measure or work it out but let's just say the aggregate attention span of the of uk adults has decreased by 15 percent in the last 10 years what does that mean for our what does that mean for our democracy i think it means we're rattier we're less likely to focus on things we're more likely to vote in people who are just blasting out sound bites without really engaging with what they're actually saying but rather what they look like and sound like these are things that are happening all around us and i, I don't think you can separate that from smartphone addiction so staying in a slightly philosophical round one of the books that you mentioned in passing in your book um, and this is a, a feat of pronunciation so the, it's homo deus the uh, oh yeah Noah Yuval harari book and he makes an argument which I probably very crudely attempt to summarise as uh, suggesting that at our root we are all algorithms um, and that the decisions that we make are part of the way that we're programmed to make decisions and actually we don't have as much sentience as perhaps we like to think sometimes. Yeah. If, you t- if you subscribe to that view and then you look at a world in which algorithms are being more used more and more for advertising and so on, do you think we're ending up in a place where actually there is a potential limitation or reduction in freedom of choice as a result of the way that tech companies are able to target us more directly. Yeah. Algorithms fo- follow very predict- predictable routine um, uh, behaviours and we're, we're obviously not quite that straightforward. But <laughs> we, I think that the the way I write about it, and I obviously quote quite extensively from that book because it is a brilliant book, at root, the tech firms are advertising companies with the goal that all advertising companies have always had, which is to understand you better than you understand yourself, to work out the little drivers and the little things that make you do things. And in the end, if companies, and I'm talking about next year, I'm talking about in 20 years' time, are able to really understand through the extraction of all sorts of data about your behaviour, they'll work out drivers and correlations, the things that make you do the things you do that you won't really understand yourself. You know, you care about subject X, you're motivated by subject Y, your weak point is subject Z. You don't know those things, but an algorithm does. And then the question becomes, well, who has that power over you? How can they exercise that power over you in a way that's irresponsible? That's what we should be worried about. But the other flip side of it is that I think our greatest weakness is that we love convenience. I mean, we'll trade anything for things to be easy for us. And if we have personal AI assistants in the home that will simply sort everything out for us, do everything for us, it's not long before we go from saying, Alexa, can you order me some milk? To Alexa, can you tell me what the news is? To Alexa, can you tell me how I should vote in the next general election? And we'll lean on those systems because we're lazy. And then we're just essentially transferring all that power to somebody else. And is that what you talk about when you talk about in the book the idea of moral singularity? Is that the yes. kind of thing that you're... Yeah, exactly. Ray Kurzweil, the Google scientist and brilliant futurist, talks about the technological singularity, the point at which smart machines can make smarter versions of themselves. And at that point, it's assumed there'll be a kind of runaway process leaving us all in the dirt. And 
Kurzweil says that will happen in based on the current trends in uh, Moore's law of computing power increases and so on by about 2045, something like that. But I see the sort of moral singularity as an equivalence whereby we increasingly lean on machines to help us make moral judgments. Who should I vote for? What shoes should I buy would be the morally best ones to do? You know, should I agree with this person or that person? Alexa, can you tell me? Here's some data. The, and the, the singularity point is that once we start doing that, we become less and less capable of making judgments and we rely more and more and more on those machines. And that's almost, again, a kind of runaway process. Having had a quick look at kind of the nature of tech and its relationship to the human condition with humans being what makes up democracy ultimately, looking at it from a more macro perspective, something that's come up a lot in recent episodes on government versus the robots is this kind of paradox whereby tech enables us to decentralize a lot more we can create our own networks peer-to-peer around the world far less need for kind of old institutional structures to do that corralling for us and that creates a lot of excitement amongst people who want to see social change and probably people of a generally more liberal persuasion but ultimately at the moment there are three or four platforms that are driving 90 percent of that behavior and so we're seeing this massive centralization of power around discourse and relationships and connectivity which is largely being perceived as a decentralization of power so which of those do you kind of lean towards more because some people will say do you know what the platforms don't matter it's facebook right now but if facebook pisses all off enough some other alternative to facebook will come off and what matters is the internet enables us to connect and other people will look at it and be like the further we go down the facebook hole the more screwed we are when Mark Zuckerberg turns out to have really strong authoritarian tendencies. Or Facebook is taken over by a government, or whatever it is, yeah. Both of those things happen simultaneously, and I think that was always the confusion. It didn't seem... Back in the 90s, everyone was very excited about the decentralised aspect, and you know, we have peer-to-peer platforms now, and it's great, and it's amazing, and, 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 and no more intermediaries. And so sort of overlooked the fact that the power was always going to be in whoever ran those platforms. Uh, which is a bit naive, really. I don't, I, I don't think these were evil people uh, who were building these systems. It just kind of turned out that way. So I, I, I mean, I, I think both of them can quite easily coexist alongside each other. But I, I suppose I'm especially worried about the centralization of power uh, in the hands of the big tech giants because these companies, Facebook is not a social media company anymore. It means a data company. You know, these, they're all, I mean, Google is the same in Amazon. They're diversifying into any industry where they can use data and processing power. I, I think it's wrong to even talk about them uh, using that language. They are data companies. Google is going to be world leaders in artificial intelligence. This is a search engine. This was an indexing machine. And so that really worries me because as more of the economy is driven by data, data is the new oil, remember, and more and more uh, internet-enabled devices become part of the economy. Artificial intelligence becomes more important in, in production. More and more power is going to accrue to the companies that are the best at doing that. And that will be small, that will be a small number of big companies. And it will no longer be one or two industries where they're powerful. It could be cross-industry. And that is cause for worry because They'll probably be more efficient services. They'll probably be more convenient. They'll probably be better in many ways, and we won't be able to do without them. And then how much control and power do those companies have over governments, over the political process and people's trust in it?
that's the thing that worries me about these monopolies. Not that they'll jack prices up, but they'll be able to start controlling politics. And you've just uh, published an episode of analysis on the BBC. I did, right? yeah. When was it out? Oh, a couple of weeks ago. Which station was it on? Radio, BBC Radio 4. I just clicked the link earlier, so I couldn't I couldn't oh. effectively plug it for you. I was like, I'll listen to that. Oh, right, yeah. Um, oh, okay. So it's BBC Radio 4 analysis. Yes, yeah, that's with, right. Uh, and you're looking specifically at the question of uh, what could or should governments do to regulate Yes. Now, uh, let's not talk about that, because if people want to find out <laughs> about the show, they can go and listen to it. But uh, what have you come away from making that programme, thinking about? I mean, I, I from, from everything I've read of your writing, suspect you come from a strongly libertarian approach to most issues. Yeah. Um, and yet found yourself inquiring judiciously into what does sensible regulation oh like? yeah it's a typical one this because i am instinctively uh distrustful of governments um especially when it comes to free speech and uh, God. but I, I i look at the direction of travel and think you know what i think we are going to need bigger governments to solve some of these problems unfortunately so how do we make them more accountable uh more transparent people feel like they work in their interests that then becomes the task we're going to make governments bigger to take on the big tech giants or whatever it happens to be they need to be good governments <laughs> they need to be accountable governments they need to be liberal governments okay uh, well i suppose the one thing i took away that i i just found fascinating i, I was trying to look at historical cases and i interviewed ralph nader who the great car activist of the 60s in the u.s who published a book called Unsafe at Any Speed, saying the car industry did not care about safety. The following year caused huge outrage. The following year, the US government passed the first federal mandated health and safety regulations for cars. Uh, Seatbelts, shatterproof windscreens, all of this stuff. And the industry at the time said it's never going to work. The automobile sector is going to collapse. We can't build all this in. It's impossible. It's an engineering feat. It's not possible. Uh, and they're like, and a year or two later, guess what? They did it all, and then they started competing over it. So General Motors and Ford are then competing over who has the best seatbelts. So companies will often fight against regulation. They'll say it's not possible. Then, surprise, surprise, they'll manage to do it afterwards, and then they'll turn it into an advantage, which is what I think is going to happen with GDPR. Companies are going to start really competing over who has the best privacy policies. And that's a really good thing that government can do, just shift the incentives slightly and then set competition off on a different direction. And a lot of people uh, come back to this argument, which we touched on earlier on, about whether companies like Facebook, data company or not, are platforms for people to publish on and therefore they are agnostic about the content that is on them or whether they are publishers themselves. Yes. Do you have a view on the answer to that question? I think if we were to make... Facebook et al. publishers, uh, they would more or less collapse overnight and the cost in terms of free expression and frankly how interwoven they now are into our democratic life would be too great. Other people disagree, but I think it would be too great. I don't think they can reasonably be called publishers. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. That said... They clearly can't just wash their hands of all responsibility. I think the example in Germany is quite a good one where they have said, if you do not remove content that we have alerted you to as being criminal very quickly, indeed, within 24 hours, then you're going to face massive fines. So, i.e., push them as close as you can to being responsible platforms rather than being publishers is my suggestion. But when it comes to the adverts, because this is the this is the actual money this is where they actually make their money i think they probably do need to do more in taking an active role in monitoring what is published as an advert so they could be seen as a publisher of adverts i.e. those have to be verified checked legally cleared but a platform for the content if that makes sense it does and we've had an episode on political advertising which came up in what will be the most recent episode we did on fact checking um, where the fact that political adverts can be run with absolutely no regu- there's no regulation of facts in political advertising you can say what you want um, and it's up to the public to regulate that in their opinion as to whether you were being true mm. or false so I think that's again where the regulator has a responsibility too uh, but, but can say to the platforms uh, send us every single advert that's political, um, that's paid for during a campaign, and we'll mon- we'll monitor them and check them. And it's interesting that you say, and it may just be not being precise with the <coughs> words, that perhaps uh, we need bigger governments to deal with the challenges of tech. Yeah. Now, I instinctively <coughs> think that governments generally try and do the right thing by people. I think it's it's unwieldy. I think I think you know your analysis in the book about democracy being built for. 19th and 20th mm. century world and actually we've got 21st century problems now is spot on and government hasn't really moved that far along since the 19th or 20th century we need fle- more flexible more adaptive more shaping government whether we need bigger government or not i think is a different point more interventionist i guess bigger might be the wrong word yeah more intervention more involvement possibly in the economy more active in its uh, safety nets, uh, more inventive in its way of taxing in future, more powers in terms of regulating how algorithms work. So I think we need some kind of offstead for algorithms, more regulation in terms of how elections work. So more power. I mean, in the case of bigger, yes, the information commissioner's office should be bigger. It should have more people and more power. So there are bits that need to be bigger. But yeah, I suppose it's more about being having a being a bit more interventionist, which is a nervous thing to do. And I, I think libertarians have a difficulty understanding my book, not understanding the words, but thinking, I kind of agree that the concentration of power in these tech 
platforms is a real worry from a true liberal's perspective. But I don't want government having more power. But I don't see any obvious alternative. Power has to go somewhere. I guess someone's got to kind of be in charge and be big enough to stand up for things. And you've got to find ways of, you know, aggregating people's interests and concerns and hopes and making it somehow work. I mean, that without this is what people don't understand about democracy. Sometimes it's not you're not always going to get what you want, and it's not all about free speech. It's about a system of government that combines reasonable protection for citizens with reasonable levels of individual freedom and liberty but but also has to enforce decisions i mean you can't have a democracy if there's no government there that's able to enforce the decisions that are reached by the majority which is why things like tax raising power is really important or a criminal justice system that works you rightly point to the importance of elections underpinning that as well um and the need to have elections which are seen to be free and fair and hopefully incorruptible um, we've had a quite a significant election stroke referendum here in yeah. the UK that is arguably has arguably been corrupted now without getting into the ins and outs of Brexit it would seem to me that when you do a historical analysis of kind of how democracies lose their strength and muscularity having an election in which a foreign power is seen to have taken a clear interest the result is very narrow and the government is bound by its own political interests not to assess the independence of that particular vote doesn't speak to me as a particularly healthy democratic exercise no no of course not <laughs> and it, and I, but, but again, I think again i think it's a good case of how the technology has changed faster than governments are able to keep up with it. They've struggled to regulate it. So then people lose trust in the whole process because they think it doesn't really work anymore. That's the bigger message of well, whether it's Cambridge Analytica or whether it's Russian involvement or whether it's Brexit or whether it's spending limits. Whatever the issue is, the, my worry is that more and more people think elections don't really work very well anymore. That's partly the problem of the regulators not being able to show that people can have trust in the way the process works. Well, without getting too diverted, I guess they're trying. The Electoral Commission, as the regulator, is saying these people broke the rules and everybody else is saying, yeah, but we're really bored of Brexit. Well, It's yeah. a riddle and no one understands it's, it's it. It's true. That's true. But the, That's um, true. without getting too diverted, what you're saying there adds up to something that I feel... Having done, I think this is episode 20 of Government versus Americans, and we're going to take a break for the summer. <laughs> um, but one of the things that's really clear to me is it's really easy to fall into this utopia versus dystopia conversation. And actually, all this shit is going down right now. Like The future is going to be good in some respects and bad in other respects, because that's what the present has always been. And hang on a minute, though. It can be very, very bad in some respects. Yeah, well. absolutely. It, I mean, it can be very, very good in other respects. I, I, so yeah. I don't, I don't subscribe. I think whatever present moment you live in, there is a a scale of good and bad. Yeah, but do you think in around. in the mid 1930s, people were probably saying, oh, but you know, good and bad. Things will be kind of work out in the end, won't they? I don't. Think Demagogues we... have always used modern technology. I mean, it was really bad. I don't. <laughs> Yeah, it was historically. You know, when you look at it historically, yes, at the time it was just happening. But we're living at the time. Yeah, we're living that, now. That's, but that's that, that is my point. You know, if you look in a kind of proud democracy like Britain, 
that has just undertaken a significantly flawed democratic exercise that's going to shape the future of the country for at least a generation. If you're a hundred years on from now, you're not writing about now as a particularly great time, and you're probably not writing about the future as a particularly great time. So for us as interested citizens who feel that something's changing, fundamentally technology is affecting the human condition, as we've discussed, government hasn't been able to keep pace with that change and the, the, the things it needs to do to uh, protect society and the quality of our democratic culture that seems to be happening as well at the moment my question then is what do we do about it because a lot of the conversations that seem to be happening in political circles are this is something that is coming to us if we don't react all this bad stuff's going to happen and actually i would contest after having thought about it for quite a lot of the last year it's happening right now so what can we do and i know you've got some ideas because they're at the end of the book yes i do have some ideas but you know, when you write a book, you put ideas down, but they never they never seem quite up to the task, if you like. Because I feel that the the scale of the change in, uh, yes, happening now, happened for the last 10 years, is going to happen for the next however many years, is so great that what can one book ever really achieve? But I, I, got, I put just sort of 20 almost provocations. I mean, they are suggestions, but they're a paragraph long, so some other poor sod's going to have to actually work out in detail what it means. And I kind of separate them to what should governments try to do? What should tech companies try to do? What should people try to do? And, I mean, to start with people... Like we're all complicit in this. We're we're building the future. Either it's the clicks and the swipes and the shares that we are feeding the data machine all the time, or it's each of us engaging in what's becoming a increasingly unhealthy and polarized political debate, and we point fingers at other people, but we're also part of it. Um, so we can. There are things that we can do, you know. And I talk about the importance of downloading ad blockers and you know, stopping the sort of the constant data machine from wearing along, being more responsible with what you share and thinking about that. Uh, the difficulty, of course, is that for each of us, it's like a collective action problem. Each of us doesn't gain very much from making our lives harder online. You know, we, we won't use Google because we'll think, oh, I want to use a smaller one to help that company. And I don't want to use Uber because I want to encourage unionized taxi services. And that will cost us in time and money and the benefits to us of doing that are pretty small but all of us have to start doing those things i think to create a much healthier economy and society uh i can sometimes think of it like fair trade uh coffee you know people wanting to take a sort of political position on their shopping choices i think you can do the same with your online choices people don't think about that much and there's simple things too like working on your um and developing your own sense of focus and concentration you know break yourself out of the addiction forming habits that you formed and that's really hard it's hard when it's booze it's hard when it's smoking but people do it well you can do it with your smartphone and it's important and it's a kind of duty as you for you as a citizen to do that so we can't just point fingers at other people there are things that each of us can and should do I think that's a good point to finish. <laughs> and of course, listen to podcasts as well, obviously. Jamie, thanks very much for uh, for coming back. It's been great to have you. Thank you. 
So that's all from Government vs. the Robots for this half of the year. We're going to take a few weeks break to enjoy some of the summer sunshine and have a think about some of the ideas that have arisen from the podcast we've produced over the last nine months. In the meantime, if you've got ideas about issues we should be looking at or people we should be talking to, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at govt underscore vs underscore robots. If you're enjoying the show, please do tell as many of your friends as possible about it and make sure you're subscribed so that once we're back on air, those future episodes come straight through to your iPhone. In the meantime, thanks as ever to Sky Redman for her help with the editing and production of this podcast and we'll be back in the near future, by which time, who knows what will have happened. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.